This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I'm here today with Anna Mosby, a climate policy expert uh, here at S&P Commodity Insights, and Conway Irwin, an energy and finance capital markets experts. Conway and Anna, how are y'all? Doing well, thanks. Great. Good. Y'all will recognize Conway uh, from podcasts of the past, uh, some of which are um, precursors to our topic today. We want to talk about um, COP27 or the United Nations Climate Change Conference. And this conference is coming up in November. Um, We're we're talking today on August 10th. So about, uh, what is that, about two or three months uh, from now in Egypt. and um, follows what what was a um, you know an, an attention getting conference in COP twenty six last year that Conway we did a lot of work on um, leading up to for, for a couple of reasons what one of it being um, one of the more tradable climate events um, mm-hmm. and I was curious you know so, so we put this on the calendar at the beginning of the summer a few weeks ago. Um, just given all the energy security concerns on the back of the war with Ukraine, and, and so much of the energy agenda has changed uh, or seemed to have changed this year from, from strictly climate focus. Um, and, and a lot of that, uh, I went on holiday for a little while and came back, and there was the Inflation <laughs> Reduction Act, which seems to have changed the tone of all climate conversations uh, as we move into, uh, I'm going to call it COP27 season, but as we move into the fall here. Conway, can, can you describe a little bit about this uh, this recent climate legislation in the U.S. and how that may impact stage setting for, for COP27 before we get into a little bit of the rehash of what COP26 brought forward? Sure. Uh, and I will say that it, it took everybody by surprise. You didn't have to be on vacation to be sort of shocked to wake up in the morning and see that all of a sudden it looked like the U.S. would, in fact, be able to uh, pass um, what we've been calling a climate bill. It's not really a climate bill, though, is it? I mean, it's not um, it's not a bill that's specific to emissions. It doesn't mm-hmm. set a target. It's not, um, you know, it's not directly a climate bill. Obviously, indirectly, it has, you know, huge impact on climate. But really, it's industrial policy. And I think that's really telling about the position that the U.S. is in, you know, heading into multilateral negotiations, where the focus really is, you know, how much are you going to reduce your emissions? Because, I mean, as we've seen in the past, there's really, there really isn't the sort of political alignment in the U.S. on climate change that allows for consistent climate policy. So industrial policy is sort of, you know, a backdoor into a climate bill. Uh, People can get behind the U.S., producing more, innovating more, investing more, you know, really becoming a powerhouse in one specific um, area. You know, it's a number of sectors, obviously, of clean tech, but really becoming competing as this industrial powerhouse uh, in a way that you can't get that kind of political uniformity on uh, committing to reducing emissions. 
So, um, you know, it delivers huge emissions reductions, which is great. Uh, not quite to the level that the Biden administration had sort of set out to achieve really early in the administration. Um, but still definitely a bright spot where U.S. climate policy is concerned. So going into COP27, and I think, you know, Anna will have um, a lot of insight into this, it would seem to strengthen the U.S. negotiating position by saying, you know, we are doing something. In fact, we're doing a lot. We're doing kind of what we're capable of within these political, domestic political constraints. And does it feel like a, a shift? I mean, re relative to where we were just four weeks ago, that that I, I was, you know, I scheduled this call thinking, gosh, COP 27's going to have a hard time coming up with a real agenda to get people motivated. This this feels like potentially a, a real pivot. I would say yes, Anna. I would say where U.S. policy is concerned, certainly a real pivot. It remains to be seen what that actually means for COP27, and we can talk a little bit more about that later. Mm -hmm. um, but there are some, some key international measures missing from the Inflation Reduction Act that could have strengthened the U.S. negotiation negotiating position quite a bit more. They don't have any aid for developing countries, which is a big omission. It was in the original Build Back Better, and that would have really strengthened the U.S. negotiating position in a major way and changed the tone of the COP in probably a major way. Well, and the, the the point you just brought up about some of the the, the support for de developing countries that that was one of the things I think flagged on the backside of COP26 as well as an area for improvement. C can you give us a little bit of debrief of COP26 and uh, I guess where we were four weeks ago or three weeks ago before the the IRA and and, and what um, you know some of the the things that perhaps had momentum coming out of last year's event in, in, in Glasgow and um, how we should start thinking about things now? Yeah, of course. So there was definitely a lot of momentum coming out of Glasgow. The Glasgow Climate Pact was something that was honestly a real surprise for a lot of people. They did not expect for them to pull it out at the end. I think people were expecting it to kind of be a bust at the start. And the Glasgow Climate Pact was a big deal. They approved Article 6. That's a huge step forward for the Paris Agreement. It allows you to move forward into the actual implementation phase of the agreement, whereas before we were still working on finalizing the rule book for the agreement. Did describe Article 6 for... for um... Article 6 is the measure within the Paris Agreement that basically dictates how carbon trading is going to occur. So how you're trading within carbon markets. So trade of offsets between countries, within countries, how they're counted. Um, and that's going to be a major move for a lot of countries in actually achieving their emissions reduction targets. They're going to need to purchase offsets, which are things like, you know, if you build a new forest, you're reducing your carbon emissions by X mm -hmm. million metric tons, and, and you can count that towards your target. So Article 6 applies basically a uniformity that my measurement of carbon in the U.S. is the same as yours in Nigeria, is the same as yours in France right. or wherever And else. if I am buying it in the United States from Nigeria, Nigeria can't count it for their target because I'm counting it for mine. So it established okay. rules for where those things are actually counted, how you can trade them, when you can trade them. It was it was basically the final step in the Paris Agreement that allows for it to actually lock into place and hopefully allow it to move forward smoothly. <laughs> okay. Um, so that was a huge deal. The other really 
major measure that they that they included in there was the phase down of unabated coal power and phase out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Now that language was watered down from the initial uh, negotiations within Glasgow, but but that was still a major step forward. It's the first time they've really mentioned coal within these agreements. Uh, and then they also agreed to revisit and strengthen their nationally determined contributions, which include the country emissions targets. And that was supposed to happen as necessary. That was the quote within there by the end of 2022. So the countries were asked to revisit their targets by the COP, by COP27 and strengthen them if they need to. They're also supposed to be developing a work program to scale up mitigation efforts in the near term. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, came out with a big report right before COP26 happened, and it basically said, we are not on track. We are nowhere near on track to, to achieve the emissions reductions necessary to get the temperature outcome we want. So we need to move faster. We need to go harder on our emissions targets. And Glasgow responded by saying, OK, we'll take another look and we'll work harder and we'll put better targets in place immediately. So that was a big step forward for countries to say that they would that they would take another look and reevaluate their targets. That wasn't supposed to happen for a few more years. People aren't supposed to revisit their NDCs for a few more years. They had some some time to rethink them, but now they're saying we're going to move with more urgency. That's what's needed. Um, and also to develop a work program to scale up mitigation efforts in the near term. Again, it's essentially saying we're not moving fast enough. We really need to work a lot harder. And it was a big move forward for countries to agree to do that because they many of them had already submitted new targets at COP26. So to go back within a year and say, never mind, that wasn't enough. We need mm -hmm. to step forward again. That was that was a pretty big measure for them. Um, in terms of what we were talking about before, in terms of financing, the countries admitted, the developed countries admitted that they had not hit their goal. The goal was $100 billion in finance mm -hmm. for developing countries by 2020. They did not get there. They still have not gotten there. Uh, and they agreed to, to revisit this and, and look again at their targets, as well as establish a dialogue on loss and damage, which is something that we'll get to when we talk about COP27. That's a huge hot button issue that's going to be coming up at the COP. So there were a number of things that came out of the Glasgow Climate Pact, all of which revolved around, you know, we may have the Paris Agreement in place. It might finally be ready for implementation, but we're still not working fast enough. We're not working hard enough. There's a lot more work to be done, and it needs to happen immediately. We need to be seeing real progress at COP27. And how has, I mean, the, the other thing, obviously, is the, the, the war with Ukraine, which was, what, five or six months after COP26 and resulted in, in more of a country's need energy of all forms and, and a real urgency to that. How has that influencing the policymakers' appetite for COP27 ambition? Um, and is, you know, now, now that we're a few months away from COP27, is that changing the conversation or, or not? I think it depends on the country, <laughs> yes. So in the European Union, you saw it honestly kind of strengthen their resolve to move towards their emissions targets. Um, but it's very dependent. Practical reason for that, right? Yeah. Because, you know, if you, if you have uh, all the oil and gas reserves in the world domestically and you don't 
you know, have to rely on um, an exporter for that, you know, looking at the European Union specifically with Russia, then it makes sense to use what you have at home, right? And the EU has limited resources insofar as that's concerned. So, you know, purely for kind of domestic security alone, it makes sense to really invest in what you can produce at home. Whereas for a country like, right. For a country like China, you know, if you have worries about energy security Mm -hmm. um, and you're looking at what you can produce at home, coal is a big source. Coal is a big source of energy that you can use, that you have the facilities to use, you can produce indigenously. So it really, um, in some countries, it means, or in some blocks in this case, it means more renewables. And in some, it means, you know, maybe hewing back towards, towards coal a little bit, even if you'd been trying to move away from it prior. All right. Well, Conway brought China into the conversation. Uh, so, so, so the other piece of big news over the past, I think, just five or six days um, was China's decision to um, stop conversations on climate with, with the, the U.S. on climate and, and a number of other things, um, which uh, that one of the big outcomes post COP26 was the, the China's China and the U.S. decision to start working together. Um, more explicitly on climate. Um, I, um, how, how should we interpret this? I wouldn't. Uh, it was a surprise. It, it was certainly, I think, uh, Anna, I think you would agree with me, considered a welcome surprise that the U.S. and China put out this joint communique, you know, in, at COP26. Um, tensions were high. The relationship was not looking great. Um, tensions are arguably higher now. Uh, the relationship is not looking great now. But I would recharacterize the communique that came out not as it was really kind of an agreement to keep talking right more than a than an agreement to really do anything concrete and the US and China have worked together to deliver for example the Paris agreement i mean that was a huge um that was a huge determinant of of whether that went through in 2015 so um you know it's it's not I would say, you know, from a from a financial standpoint, just in terms of you know financing behind, um, and that's that's really what our team looks at. You know, the financing behind clean tech and and the the technologies that are going to um, sort of spur or accelerate the energy transition. You know, that can can keep going ahead whether or not the U.S. and China agree at COP26. But in terms of the sort of uh, collective cooperative. Negotiations and deal making at COP twenty six. Sorry, at COP twenty seven. Um, I would say, and Anna definitely want to hear what you have to say about this. Doesn't seem to uh, to bode well. Yeah, I I would agree with you on that. Uh, I think both countries uh, will continue to move towards emissions reductions independently. I think that it is potentially a pretty big deal for COP twenty seven that China and the U S have decided that they are not going to talk about this prior to it. Climate change has typically been in its own lane when it comes to bilateral negotiations between China and the United States. Even when the tensions have been high on other topics, climate change has kind of been the topic that's been set aside. They've continued to work on it. And most of the successful cups that have happened in the past few years, Paris, Glasgow, they were all marked by China and the U.S. coming together Mm -hmm. and saying, we're going to work together on this issue. The world's largest emitter and the world's second largest emitter and largest source of cumulative emissions coming together and saying, we're going to do something about this. We're going to work together. And the fact that they have come out publicly and said that they're 
not going to work together, that could be a huge hit to the negotiations moving forward. Um, well, and Conway, you, you spoke a little bit um, about, you know, the, the work that we're doing around it, clean tech finance and, and climate finance, and we've talked about a couple surprises uh, around COP27. You know, one of the big themes for us last year with COP26 was it was a tradable event, and there was a lot of uh, reasons for investors to care. Um, looking into November, do investors care uh, as much as they did last year? And, and do they have more comfort or less comfort given some of the recent surprises that, we, that we've already flagged? So um, it's hard for me to say whether investors care more necessarily. I mean, one of the reasons one of the reasons we referred to COP as a tradable event last year uh, had to do with Article Six, mm -hmm. and um, you know, as Anna mentioned, that really laid the groundwork for the establishment of of global trade in carbon on a much bigger scale than has existed in the past. And the the, the volume of voluntary carbon market trading has has really really spiked in 2021, and I believe it's. It's um, it's continued to grow at a at a pretty pretty rapid clip since then, um, but the other reason was uh, had to do with what happened outside of the negotiations. Is the global financial alliance for net zero? You know these these efforts to get asset managers, insurers, banks all on board with the idea of aligning their portfolios, their investment, their underwriting, with um, basically with a one point five degree uh, degree Celsius pathway. Um, so that hasn't stopped now um a, a number of uh a number of new financial institutions have signed on you know since the end of cop 2026 and you know now it stands at what 450 members with more than 130 trillion in assets so there's um in assets under management apologies so there is you know there's no shortage of funds and there is a large cohort of the financial sector that has at least nominally agreed to begin the slow process of transitioning their portfolios to align with an energy transition, right? To um, to finance uh, less emissive projects, industries, companies, um, and sort of shift financing over to uh, companies, industries, projects that are more aligned with emissions reductions. So the the global financial, I'll just call it GFANS. Um, so what GFANS has done this summer is they released a series of guidelines. I mean, part of the issue is that all of these all these firms, you know, they said, great, we're going to align our portfolios with net zero, but nobody actually knows how to do that, right? Um, first, you have to do a whole lot of measurement. You know, everything that you invest in, everything that you underwrite has to be able to provide you with the information you need to understand the emissions in your portfolio. What am I financing? Um, so that exists somewhat, but it's not widespread enough yet to be sort of a given. It's uh, it's getting baked into the norms of governance, and that's that's part of the, you know, that that's part of the um, positive outcomes of COP26 is this kind of normative approach to emissions being part of what we look at when we look at um, financial and risk indicators. Uh, where GFANS is now, they're just they've just put out a first and a second enhanced report this summer, trying to tell asset managers and and other financiers how to how to structure their portfolio alignment. You know what they should be measuring, how they should be measuring, and then you know what to do with their portfolios to try to align with that 1.5 degree pathway. Um, so in that sense, you know, that's completely outside of this, um, 
this multilateral negotiation. It's continuing. There are a lot of accusations of greenwashing that we've all seen in the headlines. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, steps, baby steps. There are more jurisdictions that are mandating um, disclosure, emissions disclosure, other, you know, environmentally significant disclosure. And, um, you know, it remains to be seen what will happen in the U.S. Obviously, that's going to be a big determinant of how uh, how widespread these mandatory, mandatory disclosures are. But the more you have the financial world just sort of moving in that direction, um, it just it augurs better for um, for sort of a general shift of financing from more emissive to less emissive over time. And it's it's really... Whether they care more, whether they're more comfortable, there have definitely been some kind of backpedaling statements having mm -hmm. to do with energy security, no question. Because I think when you're faced with a situation where people are going to lose energy access, the type of energy becomes less important than simply the energy access that people need to stay cool, to stay warm, you know, to keep their vaccines cold, whatever the, whatever the case may be. Um, so I don't know that people necessarily care less, but there's something that appears to be at least immediately more urgent. And so, Anna, how does this start to to set the agenda for COP27? And, and as we're looking ahead 90 days, um, what, what are some of the things that we expect to be either newly prioritized um, or um, priorities maintained uh, on the back of last year's activity? Yeah, I I, mean, I think one of the primary priorities that Egypt has already set for COP27, they set it at COP26, and it's only become increasingly important to them with recent energy security crises, is the idea of adaptation. That was a major focus at the end of COP26. They agreed to, um, to actually begin serious discussions on adaptation. Uh, and that is something that's going to be continue to be a huge priority, especially for a country like Egypt that is expecting to get hit very hard by the actual physical effects of climate change. And can so you describe what would you mean by adaptation? So that more? would be things like, um, so let's say that you are you built a house on the coast. Adaptation would be building a seawall around your house to make sure that sea level rise does not affect it. It's hardening infrastructure as well as making sure that your infrastructure is ready for emergency situations in terms of what your personnel are going to do, um, how you adapt to things like hotter conditions. Um, you know, we're seeing all of these major impacts of climate change around the world. And what we're seeing is that countries are not well adapted to deal with them right now. You're seeing a lot of fatalities. You're seeing a lot of damage. Um, so countries are now moving. They've always started to work on adaptation, but there's more of a focus now being paid to what are we, climate change is happening. We are actually being affected by it right now. What are we going to do to make sure that our population is safe and has food and has energy? How are we going to make sure that everybody can continue to survive in this country during a climate change period. Um, so that has become even more of a focus, especially with things like food security becoming more and more of an issue as a result of what is happening with Russia and Ukraine right now. But also a lot of these countries are looking at potential issues with crops as a result of climate change. So it's just kind of doubling down on, on fears that they already had. So, so adaptation is gonna be a huge issue. 
probably one of the biggest uh, hot button issues that we're expecting to see at COP27, and I mentioned this before, is the idea of loss and damage. So loss and damage really deals with the effects of climate change that you cannot adapt to. These are things like entire island nations being covered by the sea as a result of sea level rise, places where communities can no longer live because they can no longer grow food. And a lot of this is happening in countries that have honestly been the lowest emitters so far. It's happening in a lot of developing nations. They're being hit the hardest by these impacts. And they have, this has been an issue with international climate negotiations really since they began. They have been asking developed nations for financial support to help deal with this loss and damage. And it's been a huge issue between developed and developing nations. Again, since international climate negotiations began, it was a big issue at COP26. The group of like-minded developing countries, which includes China and India, so some of the biggest negotiating countries there are at the COP, basically said we need to get loss and damage on the agenda. It needs to be an official item that we're talking about. We need to talk about how we're going to finance this. And the developed nations, primarily the U.S. and the European Union, pushed back and said, no, they have concerns about liability. So if they admit to paying for loss and damage, are they gonna be liable for a whole host of lawsuits as a result of that? Uh, so they've been fighting back against that loss and damage provision pretty strongly. At COP26, they agreed to have a dialogue on loss mm -hmm. and damage. And that is a kind of a lower level negotiation. It's it's not an official, we're gonna do something on it. It's we'll we'll talk about it. We'll and have a meeting about it. Yeah, we're gonna have a That's meeting. Exactly about what it. happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, and at the preparatory meeting for the COP in Bonn, basically what happened was those like-minded developing countries again tried to put it in as an official agenda item at COP27. And pushback occurred again. It is not an official agenda item. Egypt has said it's a priority issue for them. The group of like-minded developing countries has said it's a priority issue for them. And we'll see if they'll play ball on other items if, if that is not something that the developed countries are willing to talk about. In this preparatory meeting, this is Bonn, Germany. This is just yes, like two, this is two the, months ago the, or something, right? It was yeah. quite recently. Right. And there were a number of red flags raised at that preparatory meeting that kind of signaled that even before everything happened, where, where the U.S. and China stopped talking on climate change, even before that, there were some red flags that COP27 might have some issues going into it in terms of countries are, are not getting along with some key issues. The other big thing would be that work program that I mentioned before, where countries agreed to revisit their NDCs and strengthen them as necessary. We've seen very little of that. We've seen a few countries actually submit new emissions targets, Australia, largely because of their new government. India has recently agreed to submit a new NDC, and that is a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, it would be a substantial increase in their emissions target, but we really haven't seen a lot of movement from most countries. And then the work program at that preparatory meeting, there were some disagreements over how that work program would actually operate and who would be responsible for some of the biggest emissions cuts. The, there were some large disagreements over language specifically between China and the US over what we consider a country to be. Is it, the UN typically uses developed versus developing mm -hmm. to establish responsibility. The US proposed moving to major emitters, which would encompass some countries that typically weren't 
included in that major responsibility category. So there were some disagreements at the preparatory meeting that really stalled a lot of progress. It wasn't a good outcome for the, moving into the COP, and now we have some potential other issues with, with the U.S. and China just ceasing negotiations altogether. Are there any areas that, that represent light, bright spots? I mean, I, I understand that finding agreement on things as contentious as climate and these types of responsibility, uh, unclear responsibility conversations, are there any quote-unquote straight lines? I think that adaptation is something that most countries are going to agree is something that needs to be worked on. We'll see what happens when financing is brought up, mm -hmm. is brought into that topic. But the idea of establishing a work program on how they actually look at adaptation, how they monitor adaptation among countries, I think that is something that most countries agree. Everybody can agree that is something that they need to make progress on moving forward. Every country is being hit by climate change right now. Everybody needs to do something. Um, and I think that is one area where they, they can probably come to agreement. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Again, if financing is brought up, that could change the ballgame altogether. Um, in Conway, what what are some of the in terms of adaptation? What are some ideas that the financial financial sector is considering to to addressing this? You know, it's interesting. Um, adaptation is coming up a lot outside of the context of cops as well. You know, this is not just sort of a multilateral question. Um, we've read about um, the train system shutting down in the UK during the heat wave, right? That is not a train system that is. Uh, well adapted to sort of we'll call it the new weather um and it's not it, it's every developed country it's every developing country and there are already some some interesting projects underway but i think when you get down to the dollar amounts you know especially in the context of cop 27 so i was looking through some of the documents from that bond meeting some of the presentations and um someone who was on the board of the adaptation uh, finance committee the adaptation fund committee uh she, she did a presentation and um, the fund has a billion dollars. Now, New York City is paying a billion dollars to raise a single park at the southern tip of the island to prevent future catastrophic flooding. That's one park that you one can city. easily walk around, one city, one billion dollars. A billion dollars in an adaptation fund is, I'm not gonna say it's laughable because a billion dollars you know, can do some good, but we are talking about billions and billions of dollars. And a simple transfer of funds from developed to developing economies, even if developed economies with their own adaptation needs were willing to do it, would never begin to cover it. You would really have to be talking about the same sort of blended finance opportunities that, that were in discussion a lot around COP26, where uh, the host country um, basically provides incentives, government incentives, you know, whatever the case may be, and has backing usually from some multilateral development bank to um, to mitigate risk, but to basically offer the chance of earning a return on adaptation projects. So what's going to be required is financial engineering, not a transfer of wealth, but mm -hmm. just financial engineering, because you're not going to pour you know that it's not investment if it's if it's a donation it's not investment and investors are not going to pour billions of dollars into adaptation projects if they can't be assured at least a reasonable chance of a return so i would be surprised if blended finance weren't a big topic in 
the context of adaptation as opposed to simply sort of the build out of renewables or, you know, the context in which it's been discussed most extensively at previous COPs. Well, I can see where the transfer of the, the transfer idea going from developed to developing is also hard to stomach as a developed country because the loss that you bear is going to be more expensive because you're developed. And so it's, it's, there's a, everybody's kind of in the same thing together. Um, it's also just, not politically feasible. Right. You know, if you want any longevity to any of these policies, if they're going to have any staying power, they're going to have to not anger your constituents so much that they boot you out of office at the first opportunity. Right. Well, um, there's plenty more to discuss here, and I'm sure that this will uh, keep coming up on on all of our agendas for the next uh, three months. Um, you know, maybe as a as a last question for for, for both of you, um, are, are you optimistic? Um, where what are what are things that you're watching? I guess first, are you optimistic? And, and two, what what are some signposts or things that we should pay attention to between now and what is it, November eighth, November sixth, November eighth? Um, when it six, all kicks I think, off. yeah, six, six to 18th, I think is sort of the okay, initial to window. Yeah. Right before the World Cup, which we can discuss Anna? in another podcast. <laughs> ah, am I optimistic? I, I get told quite frequently when I talk about this topic that I tend to not be the most optimistic when it, <laughs> when it comes to this. I, I think I'm more realistic when it comes to the outcome of the COP. Not every COP is successful. That doesn't mean that it was a huge failure. I don't I don't have a lot of optimism for this particular cop. There are issues going on beyond climate change that are taking priority mm -hmm. in a lot of governments. There are some serious issues with bilateral negotiations happening right now that have historically been stumbling blocks for cops in the past. And and I think that this is going to be a real uphill battle for negotiators to actually accomplish very much at this COP. Uh, we'll see what happens in the next few months. If the United States and China reestablish communications, I think that would be a huge step forward. I think that would be a, a major source of optimism moving into COP27. And, and I think that's probably what I'm going to be keeping my eye on the most moving forward. I agree with Anna. That would be a that would be quite a signpost if the U.S. and China were willing to sort of put aside their differences in this one area, which is something they have been willing to do in the past. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we'll see how the next few months go. I I think in terms of optimism, I maybe am not optimistic about the prospect of the diplomatic side of the equation being as present as it needs to be. I mean, I would think that if you're going to talk about delivering big emissions cuts in ways that are, um, you know, that are not the result of like a recession or a pandemic right. or something, um, you kind of need to have, you need to have two things present, uh, ideally is you would need that um, that collaborative spirit, you know, that multilateral agreement that this is where we're going and we're all going to work together on this. And you need the financial engineering that's going to pay for it, right? So I do I do agree that the it doesn't look great on the diplomatic side for this COP for COP27. But I would argue that, you know, in terms of this sort of continued movement in the financial industry toward normalizing. Um, emissions measurement and um, and comparisons uh, and baking that into a portfolio, you know, what 
what is good governance? Maybe good governance is also good environmental governance. And, you know, as the more those norms get baked in, um, you know, the more things move, even if slowly or sort of imperceptibly, I don't mean in terms of speed of movement. I mean, you just don't really notice in that direction. And the other thing that I would say is, um, you know, coming back to the IRA, the U.S. can't really go to COP27 and say, we passed this bill that's going to do exactly what our COP promises are. It's just that wasn't going to happen, right? And we all know that that wasn't going to happen. Another lever was found, and it is going to deliver emissions reductions. And ideally, it will also deliver, you know, lower cost, uh, clean energy and other forms of clean tech. Uh, not just for Americans, but for export as well. And something that, um, you know, it, it's interesting if you look at the CHIPS Act, it's full of, you know, billions of dollars of investment in very sort of futuristic forms of clean energy. So there's an entire industrial policy response to climate that's happening in the U.S. that is not, that is not climate bills. It's industrial policy, right. but it's all moving inexorably in this in this direction, in this clean tech direction, in this transition direction, and it's got staying power, right? You don't see people really that up in arms about funding, you know, EV charging networks or more solar or more wind. You've got you've got stuff around the margins about um, you know provisions that people don't like, but there, it just. It doesn't make people nearly as angry as I think a climate bill would. I mean, people, you know, against sort right. of climate provisions. And so, it's legislation. It's, so it has staying power. It's not going to be undone. Exactly. In two years. Exactly. And it's a tool that can work. It's not a tool that's going to be very easily undone by a change in administration. So, um, you know, in that sense, I am optimistic about the direction and the speed of movement and where the money is going, frankly. All right, that's a positive way for, for us to, to, to leave it. And, and I hope we can pick, pick up on this as we get closer to COP27 and, and maybe rehash it as we get out of COP27. Um, so Anna and Conway, thank you both for, for joining me. I'm going to put into the liner notes of this podcast uh, more information about uh, the services that you all both contribute to and encourage anybody who uh, wants to learn more about anything that we're doing here to reach out at energysense at ihsmarket.com and uh, look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. Thanks, so. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.